This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. This week, we have the total privilege to talk with Tobias Carlisle of Acquirers Multiple. Uh, He also runs an ETF, which we're going to talk about. He's got two podcasts. There's just so much that he's doing, and it's honestly one of the coolest things to have him on the show because I remember Toby, I mean, I'm probably going to... You know, I'm probably going to fangirl myself a little bit, but it was it was your book, Acquirers Multiple, that really got me started into um, in investing and really, really thinking about um, you know cheap and obscure companies in a in a in a different way. And then you followed me on Twitter. I was like, this is the greatest day ever. And now to get a chance to talk to you and you know over 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 Skype and doing a podcast is really uh, you know I guess from my perspective, uh, something to check off the old value investors bucket list. So thank you for fulfilling that. And uh, I know we're going to have a great conversation. Hey, man, my, my absolute pleasure. You're a great follow on Twitter. Sorry about uh, getting you hooked on deep value. It's uh, it, it's just this affliction that lasts for the rest of your life and it doesn't always work. So it's a painful one to kind of to kind of uh, follow. Yeah, no, I, 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 I try to balance it between looking at that stuff i i try to do that once a week and then and then some more i don't know if you want to call them growthy because i just kind of hate using that term but just some more of the uh non-traditional value type stuff but yeah always looking for those cigar butts if i can find them um finding finding a lot of them in japan and some really obscure places so um i don't really want to spend too much time talking about you know the introduction and kind of kind of uh you know, who Toby is, because really, there's been great podcasts done about you. I know Ian Castle did an interview with you, which I'm going to put in the show notes. Um, that gives a great background into kind of who you are and how you started. And so I know you're a busy man and you've got, you know, your time is your time is valuable. So let's just kind of dive right into it. You may, you run an ETF, two podcasts, you have kids, you've got businesses. How do you allocate your time during the day? Yeah, so what, I've got little kids, they're six, five and two. So uh, two-year-old gets me up really early. And uh, that's when I start work. I just start checking emails and things like that. And then uh, I've got the week kind of divided up. So I do different things on different days because I find it's just easier to get into one mode and do that. So I do podcasts on Tuesday and Thursday. And then the ETF stuff runs sort of Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So we're running two ETFs now. The uh, The second one just came out. Uh, it was today or Friday. Started trading. It's deep. D-E-E-P. It's uh, it's another deep value ETF. It's going to be um, uh, small and micro in August. We're just transitioning over. So that's, uh, I don't know if it's an exclusive, but it's uh, the first time I've talked about it. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, it's actually, I'm jumping, I think I'm jumping way ahead here in the conversation, but let's just let's just kind of roll with it. Is that the thing that you said you're working on? You had a project with Ian and you weren't allowed to talk about it on your own podcast? So that's that's just that's just the ETF. So you're not allowed to. I'm not allowed to discuss uh, any of my ETFs on on any of my social media or podcast or anything like that for compliance reasons. Right. Uh, you're just not allowed to discuss it. Or it makes you can, but then you have to get every single thing you say approved, and it's just too much to to do that. So I I just don't discuss it on anything 
on any of my existing stuff. And then when I discussed it, it, it has to go through a compliance process, which is a nightmare. Yeah, that sounds like a headache. But luckily, you know, we're we're not on your podcast. Or this your is your platform. podcast. I was about to say this is my this is my podcast, and I guess I'm the compliance person, so it's okay with me. <laughs> so talk to us. Talk to us about the first um, the first ETF. I think it's is it is it Zig or Zag? I know it's one of those. Zig. Okay. Yeah, Zig. So, so that's the Acquirers Fund. Um, that's a long, short one thirty thirty uh, ETF. Um, doesn't have to be one thirty thirty. It can run. Uh, at a lower exposure than that, but the idea of 13030 is you've you got a 100% exposure to the market, so it trades um, with that sort of market level beta, roughly. But then it's got two kind of portfolios in it. It's got the long-only uh, deep value portfolio, which is um, you know I'll find deeply undervalued companies with lots of cash flows and cash on the balance sheet that, for whatever reason, uh, are currently being ignored by the market and i want ones that are taking advantage of it and buying back stock and so that's the long portfolio and then it has this long short portfolio that's trying to arbitrage the most overvalued stocks and the most undervalued stocks and so over time most of the time they kind of trade closer together so that that spread should close up and uh, the short side of that is um, companies that are extremely expensive that have uh, negative free cash flow, so they're losing money. They've got debt on the balance sheet, and that means that at some stage they have to do a capital raising, and that's often how they keep themselves going. They're just raising capital all the time, either by uh, selling equity or by raising debt. And then uh, on top of that, I look for companies that have got negative momentum. So that's important because there are a lot of these uh, very glamorous companies that uh, they tell a great story and they trade extremely expensively and they go up all year long and they really only have uh they really only run into trouble when they can't raise capital and so that's what i'm looking for that sort of inflection point and that's what the negative momentum tells me that the market might be getting a little bit tired of the story that they're telling so the kind of companies that fall into that screen stuff like tesla so tesla's been uh really tough on to trade because when you look at the balance sheet it's carrying a huge amount of debt uh, it's a metal bending business, so it's not it's not a great business. It requires a lot of capital to run. You can't sell more cars without building more factories right. or working them harder. And it doesn't make money when it sells cars. It loses money. Hasn't grown its top line in six quarters, and um, it raises capital all the time. So I I think that Tesla is a company that. You know, more often than it's definitely not a long. It's more likely a short. But the problem with it is that Musk is an incredible entrepreneur. Exactly. He's an incredible promoter, and so you have to be very careful if you want to short something like Tesla. You're sort of on the other side of Musk's huge Twitter account and his, um, you know, his access in the media. So when he talks, you often see that the stock moves around quite a lot. So. Tesla's one of those ones. It's a great example of just uh, why shorting is very hard and why having something like a momentum overlay helps you sort of stay out of something like Tesla, even though everything else might suggest that it's a pretty good short. So is that momentum overlay something that you developed like post-talk or post um, the original study and you just realized, okay, if I add this layer and then is that layer just like a simple moving day average, like a 200 or a 50 day? 
that's exactly right. So it's just it, it it's something that I developed just over years and years of being short this stuff that just Getting kept on going destroyed. up. <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a more recent it's a more recent thing. I've only started doing it. I started doing it about five years ago, uh, just because I and I'm glad that I did. Until that point, I didn't have it on. I just sort of tried to short on valuation. Well, it's not not so much shorting on valuation. Like I'm looking at distress and you know earnings manipulation and fraud. That's really what I'm shorting on, in addition to overvaluation. But it doesn't matter. There are so many of these companies that um, just tell a really good story. And so, yeah. So about five years ago, I realised that you can be short something like Lululemon or any of these companies that they don't have great financials, but they're loved by the market. And so I, I just use the simplest one that I can. I just look back 12 months and see where the stock was 12 months ago. And then uh, we have a we look at a few other uh, interim periods. So we might look at the three-month as well. And that just says, uh, you know, it's down over 12 months and it's down over three months. That sort of that can, that tells you what the trajectory of the stock price is. Because you can see stuff that was, you know, it was – it's down over 12 months, but it bottomed six months ago and it's rocketing up now. And you don't want to be short something like that. Whatever issue it's had, it's sort of resolved. So 12 months and three months, I find to be the most effective. So one question I have just as a natural follow-up is when you're basing this stuff off of financials and whether that's GAAP or um, the International Standards IF or IRFS, how do you deal with companies that don't or their business models aren't necessarily conducive to the standard GAAP? So you know, a logical one there is SaaS businesses or something where, you know, for every dollar they spend in marketing, they actually get $3 over the next three years in lifetime customer value. How do you, how do you, um, you know, kind of bifurcate those two ideas in your head? Well, there's, um, there's, those companies ultimately have to earn money. So when they're negative free cash flowing, uh, you know, in addition to, so you would look at something like, is the, uh, is the debt growing? On do they do they have debt? Do they need debt to kind of finance themselves? And so you know a good a good example of that might be Netflix. So if you look at uh, so you know Fan Mag or whatever the whatever the current kind of Fang definition is, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, Apple. And I think if you look at those companies, Netflix really stands out as being quite different to the other ones. And that's because Netflix has enormous negative free cash flow, whereas the other ones are all generating positive free cash flow. They might be expensive on that free cash flow, but they're definitely generating it, which means that those businesses basically, you know, absent something happening, they can't really die. Those businesses generate free cash flow. They can finance themselves forever. That's not true for Netflix. It's, it's a real outlier in that group. And so the argument is, well, they're going to, generate this huge library of uh, content and uh, that content is going to get customers and they're going to be able to hold on to those customers for a period of time. I disagree with that thesis. I think that content ages really badly. Content ages really quickly. And so that they're spending money on stuff that's like, that, you know, that mm-hmm. rots like food. Yeah. And, that was, and that was actually one of Einhorn's claims in the letter. And sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you yeah. off. But basically he was saying, how you know, they spend all this money and then within, I guess, like a week or so that the value of that content drops dramatically and people only watch what's the most popular anyways, not what's new, what Netflix is actually spending money to produce themselves. I think the real risk for Netflix is that there are, it's so easy now to produce your own stuff and put up your own tile on uh, Amazon or on uh, 
Apple or whatever your or Google, whatever your uh, whatever mechanism you use to to watch stuff on you know on your television or your laptop or whatever, and that Netflix is sort of paying for this stuff up front. So often they they buy these movies, and you know you don't have to be you don't have to be a, a movie critic to kind of look at them and see that probably what's happened is that movie was destined for the cinemas. They had one final look at it and they thought this is not good enough. Let's offload it to Netflix. Netflix right. pays for it. You kind of watch it because it's there. But, um, you know, I think that a lot of these tasks, so HBO I think is a good example too. So lots of people had HBO uh, subscriptions when they wanted to watch Game of Thrones. But absent Game of Thrones, like, so it's, it's, it's a much more hit-driven kind of business where they, what they want you to think is that it's this software-as-a-service recurring revenue subscription business when really was it, it what it is is more like the sort of movie studios which are hit driven if they if they have a hit you know, they have a great few years because they've got all of the licensing and all the other stuff they can tie and if they miss it's a disaster and they have a hole for a few years right right exactly and let's let's kind of go with this theme um of just 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 kind of realizing that there's some shorts that just don't make sense and tesla's a perfect example and really 2020 is this picture perfect idea that really no one knows what's going on no one has any idea what they're doing um do you do you feel that same way and then if so how do you maintain your process and then how do you stay comfortable in your process and your abilities when you realize that this is stuff that you've never seen before i mean we're gonna we're gonna read about this in history books for the most part yeah so this is an unusual year in the sense that the market seems to be expensive it's now more expensive than it was on the ratios before uh February when we went into the into the big bust, there's pretty clearly a lot of um, weakness in uh, in the underlying. We know that from any time there are announcements. We know that from the uh, the budget office that they've released some suggest, some data suggesting that we might be off 50 percent. That that may be a short term blip and it's going to recover, but there's certainly some underlying damage, right. and the market seems to have completely shrugged that off and ignored it. I don't think that that's unprecedented at all. That's sort of what most of these bear market bounces look like, that there's this initial torrent of selling. And then uh, for structural reasons in the market, people have got their option uh, positions out of shape. They have to rebuy. That creates delta hedging while everybody else, all this microstructure in the market readjusts to where the market level is. And I think that that's what inspires the big bounce. The bounce this time is clearly helped along by the fact that there's this unprecedented amount of liquidity from the Fed and uh, a lot of uh, monetary injection from the federal government as well in the form of the $1,500 bonuses to individuals and the money that's gone out to businesses in the sort of bailout, not a bailout. Mm -hmm. So I think that I don't think that that's directly impacted the market, but I do think that that has created this optimism in the very short term. And now now we're seeing sort of really uh, that, uh, retail participation that we had lacked prior to the, whether it's people being bought at home or whether it's um, people having a little bit of liquidity, having that money to, to sort of invest in their Robin Hood account. And it has, and Davey Day Trader, who's great, who I right. love, but right. he's definitely inspiring people to get out there and, and uh, who've never done it before and to punt on some of these things. And I think that that's manifesting in stuff like, you know, you saw Hertz trading in a really, Hertz goes into bankruptcy. Yep. The debt is trading at six or seven cents on the dollar. The debt ranks ahead of the equity. The equity is still rallying 400% in bankruptcy. It's just insane. 
it's 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 not going to recover anything. And they try. I think they. I'm not entirely clear whether they actually got the billion dollar sale away or whether that was blocked. And I, I thought that they had done it. Now I'm not entirely sure what's happened yeah, think, there. But I think last time I heard that they actually blocked it at like it a blocked. like a like a twilight hour. They were like, actually no. Um, but if they were to gone through that, it would have been one of the greatest equity. And you can't even say that it's a scam either because they write it out in the issuing documents. They're like, look, these things are basically worthless. <laughs> like, go ahead, but they're basically worthless. It would have been a donation from equity to debt. That's what would yes. have happened. They would have, been, they would have recovered nothing. And then you know that you saw that in Chesapeake as well. Uh, CHK is the ticker there. It's also bankrupt. Same kind of idea. So I think that there's this weird speculation that's come in, and it just shows how short everybody's memory is. But I don't think that the, the, the question really is, can the Fed and the federal government paper over what looks like an enormous crevice, like a genuinely deep cut, deeper than 2008, 2009, damage to businesses that make up the index? Does it not matter that they seem to have lost an enormous amount of money uh, and their businesses are likely to suffer, like maybe out to 2027, 2030? This is according to the, the CBO. Um, I, I think that it must matter, and I don't know when it's going to matter. So I think that if you look at historical uh, analogs for markets that have, so two, 1918, which was which was a, another uh, Spanish flu, 1918 bottomed in 1921, three years later. 1929 bottomed in 1932, three years later. Yep. 2000 bottomed in 2002, it's, you know, two and a bit years later. Uh, 2007 bottoms in 2009 and 2007 to 2009 there are 14 lower lows the market just kept on bouncing lower so this time around we've seen sort of one low seen a huge bounce with a whole lot of liquidity injected into it i still think that at some stage the fundamentals matter and the market has to look at those fundamentals and i think that we will find that's not necessarily saying we have a lower low but we're going to have a really volatile period while the market adjusts to where it should be when we look at this idea of these Robin Hood day traders kind of taking over um, financial media and kind of the financial landscape of things, I saw a graph, and I think it was Robin Hood traders are responsible for like a very minuscule percentage of the daily liquidity. But then when you look at how much coverage they get on CNBC, it's basically everything. And you would assume that you know all these Robin Hood traders are actually moving the markets. Do you think that the mainstream media is 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 I don't want to say to blame, but do you think they're one of the strong catalysts behind why so many people are getting involved in in day trading and trading in general? For sure, CNBC in particular uh, seems to inspire uh, that sort of buying mentality without without really looking at the underlying uh, issues that that are impacting the market. Their mandate seems to be to encourage more trading rather than. To, to be uh, to encourage an investment approach to the market, which is sort of less entertaining. The more entertaining is the Davy Day Trader, which I'm not not criticising the guy because I, I think he's really uh, engaging, really fascinating to watch. I don't want to invest like that, but I, I like watching it. Right. I think it's fun to watch. I don't know the impact that the Robinhood traders have. I think that you know it would probably not be great because I don't think that they're particularly big accounts. The only the only uh, the only wrinkle to that is that they do sell their order flow, so it's possible that there are hedge funds and so on that are getting in front of those and either doing it in leveraged ways using options or things like that that maybe inspire more movement in the market than than uh, you would expect. Yeah, so talk to us about those order flows because I think this is something important that people need to realize about the Robinhood model where um, 
firms like the Citadel Sigma Advisor or two two Sigma Advisors they use this data from day traders to front run. So what is for for someone that's you know explain explain to me like I'm five. What's the, what's the significance of that? So they, the Robinhood is a free platform for trading. So it costs you nothing to to put your trades in, uh, but the the the, the moment that you make a trade, that order is routed through uh, Citadel and some of these other firms that are high-frequency shops that are able to take advantage of it. And so they're able to uh, either front-run the trade and so that if, the, if you're investing in the equity and there's enough trading coming through that it indicates that there's some popularity in the stock, they just buy it ahead of time. And so they, they benefit from that micro second of buying one step ahead so that Robinhood probably pays the Robin Hood custom probably pays a slightly higher price and that money's pocketed by uh, Citadel. That's not necessarily an issue um, because that's, that's sort of what you signed up for if you know that that's the case, but that, that does that result in uh, a bigger movement to the stock than the size of the Robin Hood account? Probably. Yeah. I think, I think that's a net benefit though to long-term investors. If we've got more short-term oriented people, you can have, a greater chance of price dislocations from that intrinsic value. Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree. I don't think it's. A, I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, I don't think it's a bad thing for investors. I don't think it's a bad thing for Robinhood investors. I just. I'm just really trying to fit some sort of narrative to why we're seeing so much um, movement in the stock market when, uh, you know, probably the Robinhood accounts aren't big enough to to be pushing the market around. Yeah, and one thing. One thing also. Just. Just the last point about these day traders and you know davy day trader global is i think it's bringing to light the importance of luck in markets and i'm going to frame that with i've seen a lot of investors and a lot of uh we'll use we'll use his term suits in air quotes we've seen a lot of suits i want to say just get jealous of the fact that there's kids literal kids out there that are that are beating professionals that are making a lot of money that are doing things that you shouldn't do like buy bankrupt stocks and watch them go to the moon. And I think there's this element of jealousy. And do you think this is exposing the fact that in this industry, there is a lot to be said about just pure luck in this game and skill can, skill can really only take you so far. You need luck to get that, to get that really big return or to be that, you know, differentiated from the crowd. What I would say is that there's an enormous amount of randomness in investing. You you know, even good investors, if a a good record might be 51% of your positions work out and 49% don't work out. It's just the magnitude of the ones that work out. You make so much more money from those ones and you try to lose less on the ones that don't work out. That's that. why when you, as a deep value investor in particular, you're looking for asymmetric positions and asymmetric in the sense that it can go up a lot more than it can go down, that you don't think that you can lose much, but you think you can make a lot. And if you put on a whole lot of those and you, you get them right about, 51% of the time, you can do very well and make a lot of money. It just takes a long time. That's the problem. It takes a long time for skill to be revealed in the markets. And in the very short term, there's so much randomness that it's it's difficult to distinguish skill from luck. So we've had a very, very short period of time from the March 23 low to today. It's June 22. So it's three months later. And basically, the market's only gone up over that period of time. And that's the, the the entire period of Davy Day Trader's career is in that kind of market. So it's stocks only it, go up. Right, stocks only go up. Very entertaining stuff, but they clearly don't only go up. Well, they, 
to be fair to him, if you look back, the real bottom, I, st- I guess, is still March 6, 2009. We haven't gone back through that, and we're at close to all-time highs, in, in, especially in the, in, the, in the queues in the NASDAQ market. Uh, the, the S&P 500 is still off a little bit, but, you know, still, it's up a lot for the – it's up a lot uh, over, over the last three months. Yeah, yeah. And I want to I wanna, I wanna pivot now to this discussion on why you started an ETF and kind of the pros and cons – because there's a lot of people out there that listen to the show that either want to start their own fund or maybe thinking about getting into the business through a fund or an ETF structure. Why did you decide to start an ETF? So it, it just depends a little bit what kind of strategy that you want to employ. That The nice thing about the ETF is for ETF investors, if they hold there's no and the, and the ETF is run properly, there's no capital gains tax consequences for them when the manager buys or sells a stock. So, or, or, you know, mostly when they sell a, sell a winner. So if you hold, if you invest through a limited partnership or you invest through a managed account or you invest through a mutual fund, all of those vehicles, if the manager sells something, they don't necessarily send you the money, but you do get the tax consequences of that sale, hmm. which at the end of the year, when you go to pay tax, it says you've made this much in capital gains. And you say, well, I haven't, don't have any flows to sort of show that. I've, maybe I've got a little bit maybe the unit price of my mutual fund is a little bit higher, but now I've got to pay this, uh, this tax bill. Right. So the ETF gets around that because it has this custom create redeem function, where basically we're able to roll over the stock on a script for script basis and get rid of the capital gains for the investor. So I think that makes it an incredibly attractive investment vehicle because it means that I can implement a strategy that trades a little bit more often, but there's no impact on the investor. So I, you, 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 something like a limited partnership is great for managers because they get the better tax, better capital gains tax treatment as a manager as your, uh, as your carry turns into the holding for the manager. So they pay a lower tax rate on that. So limited partnerships are very attractive to managers. But the problem is that they're very illiquid vehicles. It's hard to get out in any kind of uh, quick period of time. Whereas the ETF is instantly tradable. And I think if the underlying is stocks, which I can sell in sort of 10 or 15 minutes most days, it's ridiculous to sort of gate your investors and make it hard for them to get in and out. So that's the two things that I think are most important, better tax treatment in the ETF and better liquidity. And then on top of that, there's some transparency. Some, Some managers don't like the transparency. I have no problem at all with people knowing what I hold, I think it's such a pain to sort of manage the whole portfolio that it's worth paying the management fee to have somebody else do it for you. Hmm. But if you if you don't want to pay the management fee, you can go in and you can look at all the holdings and you can put those trades on yourself. So let's yeah, let's go let's go right into it. How does how does that ETF look? And and so just for clear, we're talking about the Zig ETF. Um, we're gonna we're gonna get to that other that other project um, a little bit later, but what is, what does Zig look like today? And, and um, you know, if you have any recent entries and exits um, that you're allowed to talk about, let's, let's, let's go down there. So Zig just rebalanced the two things that I was most excited about. So I've, I've I owned a Hewlett Packard HPQ, which is the sexy part of the business. That's the one that actually makes the printers and so on Yep. Uh, rather than enterprise. So Q, uh, I held beforehand and I sold when they got the bid from Xerox. 
Uh, as it happens, the bid didn't go through and the price has fallen back. So I rebought it again in this most recent um, rebalance. The other two really interesting ones, I think a Lockheed Martin, which has been really beaten up, and Intel, which uh, anybody who follows the news or anybody who who owns an Apple product probably knows that they've lost what looks like they're separating from Apple. Apple's going to produce its own chips. But Intel is a phenomenal business. And even if they don't have that, uh, I think it's about 5% of revenues and it's not going to be immediate. It's going to take a little bit of time to transition across. You look at how quickly they've grown. I think it's likely that even if you just knock a few points off their growth, it's, it's still crazy cheap. And the amount that they've grown over the last decade, likely they continue even growth at a lower trajectory. It's still way too cheap. In the, in the preceding rebalance, uh, the two things that I bought that were most interesting were Berkshire. Okay. It's crazy that Berkshire gets cheap enough. <laughs> crazy it made it into a Zig deep value portfolio. You must have been really? just like incredibly happy about that. It's nuts. It's one of those things that, you know, of course, anybody who's in value investing has got into it because they read Buffett's letters, respect and admire Buffett. There's just no way that that company should be that cheap. But here it is. It's got this absolutely bulletproof balance sheet run by the greatest capital allocator alive. That might be one of the issues that he's getting older, but he's uh, built such a great company and he's got uh, lieutenants under him who are so good that I don't think it's going to matter too much. But it's a phenomenal company, throws a huge amounts of cash flow. I think the look-through earnings on it are about $40 billion. Current market cap's about $440 billion. So it's on it 10 or 11 times wow. sort of to what it's actually earning. And it's still growing very, very rapidly. I, I think that it's sort of between 15 and 17% compound from here with you know, virtually no downside to it. And then if, if that's too big for you, then the other one I bought was Markel, which okay. is... Um, yeah, you've got that similar Buffett-like allocator at the top. Um, I, for, I forget his name, but he's also Tom much Bain. younger. Yeah, he's also much younger than Buffett, too. That's it. He's 58. Um, the, the whole Markel is an $11 billion, $12 billion market cap. Uh, they've got the same idea where they're going to try to buy uh, businesses outright. And then he's a he's a... He's not as good as Buffett. I'm not trying to say that he is, but he's still, he still thinks the same way. He's trying to do the same thing. He's going to be careful with the capital that they get into the company. They're going to try and redeploy it at high rates of return, and they're pretty careful. Like When I say he's not as good as Buffett, he's still one of the elite capital allocators. And so I think I feel very good about that company. Over, over five, 10 years, that's going to be a phenomenal investment from this point. It's just that you know, you never can really I perfectly pick the bottom in these things because whatever issue is keeping it cheap right now doesn't go away immediately. It takes it takes uh, two or three years for that issue to kind of just just for the perception of the company to change, I think, in my experience. Right. Did you ever watch the um, Google Talks with Markel? Um, the... I have seen it a few years ago then now, I think. Yeah, no. For 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 for, for anybody that's interested, I'll, I'll I'll link it in the show notes. But it's just it's just a great idea and. I mean, he's really he's really like a Buffett uh, archetype in the sense um, of 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 just how he thinks. And so, I mean, you you also had you also did a talk at Google, right? Yeah, I did in 2014, I think. So, what was that like? I mean, because I always I always watch all these Google talks, and this is something that's actually not even on our outline, but my scatterbrain just led me to thinking about that. Like, what's like, um, did you did you get a tour of Google? Like, how was how was that day yeah. like? 
Yeah, it's fun. You go out to the go out to the campus in uh, in Silicon Valley there, and uh, get a tour around the whole campus, eat in a few of the cafeterias, uh, get to see their Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, I think it's a model Tyrannosaurus Rex and a few other things they've got there. It's very very cool. Meet the guys who make the Chromebook. Um, meet the guys who make the web browser and anybody who's sort of interested just comes along to the talk. And so I, I gave the talk and then afterwards spent quite a long time sort of talking to the guys. So it's absolutely fascinating company because it's so big. They've got such a wide variety of things going on there. The, the, the really amazing thing about Google is, um, you know, they make so much money from the search and from the you know, YouTube and uh, Gmail and so on that they're able to spend so much money on these moonshot projects that if any of them pay off, they probably, you know, it might be like Amazon finding AWS. It's just such a huge yeah. uh, event if it happens. So Google is one of those companies I would love to own. I think it's a phenomenal business. It might be the best business out there. Uh, and it doesn't get, it, it gets cheap regularly. It gets cheap enough to buy regularly. So I keep an eye on it. I, it's one that I would love to buy. I don't know if I'll ever buy it in the, zig etf i don't think it'll ever get that cheap but i would love to buy it probably in my pa so speaking of whatever you know getting a, a stock needing to get cheap enough to get allocated into that etf what does that process look like i mean you don't have to give us you know the carbon copy details but in terms of i assume that there's this quantitative strategy behind it where it runs you know it runs and then and then it finds these companies based on a screen what is that loose screen like? And then, and then how many names do you hold in that portfolio? The screen is so that the, the, the most, uh, the fa I've sort of discovered this after having an ETF. I didn't have ever run this analysis on my portfolio before yeah. I had an ETF. Once you have one, it's easy for third parties to sort of do this analysis. And somebody alerted me to this, that the, the zig is the first thing that it screens on, of course, is value. And the second thing that it screens on is quality, which I was surprised by, but it's got a very strong quality component to it. But it makes complete sense because of the way that I run the portfolio. I prefer – the first thing we're looking for is something that's cheap on an acquirer's multiple. So that's the right. uh, operating income compared to the enterprise value. And I use enterprise value because it's it gives it credit for any cash that it might hold. It, it's, um, it's penalized for debt and other debt-like things. So uh, – uh, preferred stock um, and, and various other things that are like that. So this, this is the way that an acquirer would think, if I bought this thing outright, what, what do I have to pay and what am I getting back in? And that's the operating income. And then we move pretty quickly on to make sure, well, is this a business that we would like to own at this point? Does it have, does it generate lots of free cash flow to match the operating income? Because that's a, that's a warning sign if it doesn't do that. Do, do they buy back stock? Do they have a really healthy balance sheet? Is the business quite robust? Does the business sort of keep on going no matter what happens to the economy or what happens to the industry? And so it's looking for all of those signs of financial health, financial strength, checking to make sure there's no earnings manipulation, no fraud, um, no financial distress, because that's a very important one. And then... Um, are they buying back stock? What's management doing to take advantage of the fact that it's undervalued and they've got this very robust balance sheet? Are they sort of executing on that? So that might be one criticism of Berkshire that, you know, Berkshire clearly great balance sheet. Uh, they have bought back stock and they do buy back stock regularly. But the problem is that in this last uh, 
opportunity when the market got very, very cheap. And I think everybody knows this pretty well, but it's just worth going over again. That uh, Buffett gave the talk and, uh, at the stadium with nobody in the stadium and was very somber and kind of dour. And looks sad. I think, yeah, it was. It was a. It's the. He's usually very, very optimistic. I think he's usually too optimistic in the sense mm. that you can see that the the market is too expensive. Like in two thousand seven, he was very optimistic right at the very top of the market, and then the market collapsed, and it looked like there were genuine issues with the financial system seizing up. He's still very optimistic through that whole event. This time around, not optimistic at all, which sort of made my blood run cold a little bit because he's he he has been so optimistic in the past. But um, didn't take advantage of that cheap stock to buy back stock because he's trying to maintain that very liquid balance sheet because he thinks, I imagine that there's, there's another shooter drop here or he's just trying to make sure that if they have, you know, if they have the super cat uh, hurricanes or they have yeah. those, those events occur that they're able to pay for them. So I, so I, I, I think it's there's two parts to it. Part of it is that they're, they're looking for other bad events happening. And the second part is probably he doesn't think that the market is that wasn't as cheap as he wanted it to get. Yeah, well, it almost it almost makes you wonder, too, because he's very good friends with Bill Gates. And Bill Gates was one of the first ones that kind of came on and alerted everybody to the seriousness um, at the time that COVID was. And it just it just almost begs the question, you know, how much of an influence did Gates have on Buffett's and I don't, I don't, I don't want to say market timing because that's clearly the wrong word. But I think you understand where I'm getting at. Like, in, like maybe, maybe Buffett was thinking of buying back his stock in a more aggressive manner, and then he had a fireside chat with Gates, or they had dinner together, and Gates was said, "No, you really should pay attention to X, Y, Z." And then that might have changed his opinion. He certainly mentioned pandemics in the past as one of the things that uh, could be could be a danger. It's just one of those things that you can't account for. So I, I think I, I really think the main the main thing that's happened is that he's seen the sort of he, because he's got a business that is sprawling that he, you know he knows what's happening with the rail he's got all of these investments in different parts of the economy so he knows what the underlying looks like and then the prices you know he said he ma he made this comment that I didn't fully understand what he was referring to but he said that he even with the market down 30%, I wasn't sure what he was talking about where the market was at the t at the bottom or at the time that he was giving the the, 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 the speech in May. Mm -hmm. But he said, um, even with the market down 30%, he didn't feel that the discount to Berkshire's intrinsic value had widened in the sense that what he thought was that the business was down 30% too. There had been that kind of damage to the business. And I thought, well, if that's the mm -hmm. damage that this thing causes to Berkshire, what are these other companies <laughs> look like? I mean, that's a great uh, yeah, that's a that's that's a great point. And then and then even looking out, not even not even the businesses that Berkshire owns, but just all these other um, cash light debt heavy businesses that don't have that fortress like balance sheet. But then it begs you know, it, it brings it back to this point that we were talking about earlier where, you know, the market can stay rational longer than you can stay solvent. It it doesn't necessarily matter if you if you can foresee the future where you know things are going to be bad when the market just doesn't seem to care about that in the interim and there's so much money that's being left on the table in this interim because we just don't know maybe this time is different we've never had jay powell plow money into the system we've never had the fed do what they do and so you know it's one thing where you could be right in the long term about this economy but what we know about the next three to five years is just completely up for grabs that's true, and I'm not I'm not a market timer. 
for uh and i'm not trying to even think about the market that much because and i've sort of talked about a little bit here but it's 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 really more to contextualize what i do rather than Hmm. i don't watch the market at all i don't try to figure out where it's going because it is incredibly difficult to do that i think that what an easier thing to do is you just look at each individual company and you say what is the impact of COVID on this company what's the impact of the shutdown and um if they're going to survive and they're still too cheap based on kind of their their current steady state earnings, then that's the kind of position that I want to put on. And at the same time, I'm hedging myself by being short these things, on the other hand, that I think are financially distressed. Right. So if we go back into another thing like that, that financial distress means that they get pulled down into near bankruptcy or into bankruptcy, and that's sort of how I hedge the portfolio. Right. I want to shift now towards your edge and... I really want to see how you define what what really Toby's edge is. So when you think of edge in the markets, what gives you and maybe your ETFs a long term advantage over the competition? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a really good question. It's a really hard question to answer because any edge that I'm going to give is going to be true of anybody else who's sort of doing something similar. But I would say the thing that the thing that I I try to do as an investor is I have tested the model. Uh, over all of the data that I can possibly get. And I've written very comprehensively about the components of that model. So we're totally transparent. You can read quantitative value. You can see the inputs to the to the model. You can see deep value, which sort of talks about the philosophy of how we use those inputs, why some might be more important than others. Concentrated Investing is a book about um, concentration and diversification, position sizing, because I think that that's really half of the battle. And that's what that's why the portfolio is long, short. And there's 30 names long, 30 names short, but they're more heavily weighted to long than to short. Yeah. And then uh, the most recent book is The Acquirer's Multiple, which is just sort of a, a simple version of all of the preceding books. But the idea is that uh, I, I will test all of the uh, investment ideas that I have. And so that's a constant ongoing process anytime I see a new paper. I'll build that into the model, see what impact that would have had if we'd included that idea. And anytime we have another idea, what's, you know, what's, how important is it for uh, shorts to have no free cash flow or negative free cash flow, say, I can test that idea. And so then we have a very strict process once we do that for implementing those ideas in the portfolio because you have to be a little bit careful where you, if you're always optimizing for the period that's just gone past that you create this portfolio that's optimal for the period that's just gone past, but not optimal for the future, which is mm. necessarily unknowable. You know, so one one very broad example of that value has been underperforming, uh, depending on how you measure it. But it could be from 2006, it could be from 2015, it could be from 2018. Uh, pretty materially underperforming growth type stocks over that period of time. So, do you optimize then? for that kind of investment environment or do you want to focus on something that's worked over the full data set? So I would naturally want to work over the full data set because you can find lots of these little periods of time where growth massively outperforms value. Value really lags. So the last really big one was 1999, late 1990s to 1999, and that was the dot-com boom. But there are other examples, and they're all notorious bull markets and they've all ended in tears where there's been a big crash. 
and values recovered out of the bottom. It's just the nature of it. And I think you can, yeah. you know, value loses its bid when the market gets very expensive and whatever is popular and hot at the time races away because people who invest in that stuff are pretty fearless, whereas value guys tend to be a little bit more conservative and disciplined. And so don't reach for that stuff. But it necessarily means you're invested in stuff that's not participating and it just doesn't keep up. And sometimes it goes backwards because folks are pulling money out of those things to put into the stuff that's flying high. It always ends in tears. It always reverses course. This one has taken longer than ever before, which is why people ask, well, is this, is this a different market? Is it different this time? No one knows the answer, but I don't think that it is. So my, I think that to the extent that I have an edge, it's just that we're very process-driven. We want to test everything we do. We try to be very consistent in our application of what we do. We've written very, I've written very extensively about what we do, so it's all out there in the public. So there shouldn't be any surprises when we're, when we're running the portfolio. We sort of do what you expect us to do. I think it's way too early to sort of say we're, we're underperforming since we listed in May last year. Um, I was sort of thinking that value at some stage was going to catch its bid. It hasn't caught its bid yet. At some stage, that'll happen, I hope. When that happens, uh, <laughs> yeah. then you can have me back on and I'll tell you whether the edge works or not because at the moment, it's like <laughs> it's the reverse of an edge. Well, the problem is is it's not that it hasn't worked. It's like it's worked in these little spurts and then right. it'll stop. So like I think I think you've tweeted where – you know, someone someone basically showed a graph of um, values performance versus growth performance, and there was a, there was there was a blip, a small little blip where value started to feel good, and uh, and then and then and then I think you commented like, you know what, let's just see if this can hold on for more than a week, and that's really how yeah. it's been. Um, do you? It's been quite amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing is one way to put it terrifying is another way <laughs> is 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 definitely another way to put it depending on you know depending on what you own and and really what your time frame is and one of the things i want to kind of dive deeper on is you mentioned this really process driven approach and i want to ask about your mental side of investing and how much emphasis you put on the mental side and i want to frame it by saying you know, do you think that this is where most people forfeit their edge in markets where you can have a strong system, you can have a strong process. So you've developed your process, you've done extensive research, you've written extensively about it, you know it in and out. But if you don't execute on that, then not to say that that process is worthless, but it's not as good as it could be. And so how much time do you place on the mental side? And then can you give us an example of a time where you ran your process, like let's say you ran your screen and you should have bought X, but instead you overran that process and it resulted in a bad outcome? Yeah, so that's that's uh, that's crucial, and that's something that I've written about um, a lot. So I I have very very little discretion from the output of the screen to it going into the model, and that in between the output of the screen and going into the uh, the actual portfolio, there's one other step where I have this fund, uh, fundamental uh, accounting diligence that we perform on all of the names because there are just things that. There are, there are things in the notes that should probably be in the financial statements. There are like um, what, for example? I mean, I hate to I hate to butt in, but that's but that's something that interests me. Underfunded pensions, uh, operating leases that should be capitalized, uh, just convertible notes that are just listed there and they're not mm -hmm. carried as a as a and and there's an enormous amount of leeway in the interpretation of gap and and Everest. It's not it's not a it's not a gap thing. Just I'm in a gap universe. 
that, that many similar companies categorize different things, capitalize them, expense them, do different things, and they, they need to be compared on a like-for-like like basis to make them comparable so that you can understand why somebody's doing something, why somebody's doing something else, whether it's reasonable or not. There is a lot of art in that. You can get around that by buying a very large portfolio. So that's what the, a lot of the quant firms do. They just buy several hundred stocks. I don't like to do that. I want to get more concentrated than that. So the way that I get more concentrated is I do a little bit more work with the, with the uh, forensic accounting. And that's drawing on my background as uh, I was an M&A attorney. If you're an M&A attorney, you start off doing diligence. It's just what you do. Right. They send you to a data room. You just do that for 100 hours a week for the first three or four years until you finally get your hands on a deal. Yep. And then you sort of surface and you get a little bit more senior. So I've done a lot of that and I still do that because it's, it's just remarkable the number of times that something just turns up in the notes that, well, that should probably be on the financial statements. So that's, that's the process. It is very um, rigid, but it's purposefully rigid because there are so many ways to mess the portfolio up. Greenblatt has written about this pretty extensively. So Joel Greenblatt wrote an article for Morningstar called Why Your Two Cents is Costing You a Lot, something like that. Hmm. Basically, he just shows that anytime you pull out the name that you don't like, you're probably pulling out the thing that everybody else is avoiding too, and it's probably going to mm. get too cheap, yep. in which case it's going to start working. Wow. So you have to be careful of that. So that's what, I'm just always – if I don't like the – and I think that where the problem is that people don't like the business. Oh, there's a problem with that business. It's going to be superseded by something else. That, that's why it's cheap. But the problem is that's, that's also why it's cheap. And it's probably, you know, it has been less, there's been less of this sort of recovery recently. But I still think that for the most part, making an assessment based on the, on the quality of the business is a bad assessment to make because you're often assessing them at the bottom of their business cycle. Hmm. And they, they have this period of time where management doesn't just stand still. Their competitors are leaving the industry because they can't hack it. And you get to a point where there's only a handful of groups left. They're very, very efficient. And whatever it is that is their industry comes back into vogue and it's needed again. And so they have this period of very good profitability. And if you're not in there, you miss that. And that's the best part of the cycle to catch. Mm, I love it. I love it. And I want to shift now. I know we've got about 10 minutes left um you know we're gonna we're gonna try to get this in an hour for you and i want to shift to your podcast and you know just want to i mean first off i want to say how valuable your podcast has been to my investment process and just to my overall knowledge i feel like i'm getting an mba when i listen to your podcast just from some of the guests that you've had on and your ability to ask questions so you know from not just me but from a lot of people in the community i just want to say thank you for what you've done in your podcast and it's going to make this a hard question for you because it's almost like, you know, picking your favorite child, but you've done a lot of interviews on, on this, on that podcast. Who's on your Mount Rushmore of guests? That, that I have had or that I will have? Yeah, in the... yeah that, well, well, oh, wow, that's a bit of a teaser. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with who you've, who you've had in the past up until now. Well, thanks. That's very kind to, uh, to say that about the podcast. I do appreciate that. I'm no podcaster. I, I just, uh, I wanted to find a way to promote the funds and it's hard to do that if you're in this compliance regime. And yeah. so I, I thought a podcast would be a good opportunity to do that. I just wanted to talk to, the main focus of it is guys who are, and girls, I'm not, it's not gendered, the people who are 
uh, thinking about investments on a fundamental level. So they don't necessarily have to be value investors. There are lots of growthy value investors who I've interviewed and lots of guys who probably don't regard themselves as value at all. Mm -hmm. Fundamental investors who are just looking for uh, different things. And so I'm kind of interested. I want to talk to the growthier guys. What, how do you think about, but they're still fundamental guys. Like they're not looking at price action to, to any great extent. Basically, they're looking at fundamental momentum Right. or fundamental growth and how are they then projecting that forward so i'm always trying to find someone who's got a different perspective on the market but who's still doing something fundamental whether it be in a private market uh context and so i've done a few of those that i found particularly interesting so i love chatting to andrew wilkinson he runs tiny which is so andrew made some money as a young guy running a design web design firm he still operates that web design firm, but he takes the profit from that web design firm and he uses it to invest in internet businesses. And he's trying to build the Berkshire of the internet. Fascinating guy, fascinating strategy. Brent Bishaw too, same kind of uh, private investor mm. trying to invest in private businesses using a, you know, both of them are sort of using an approach that I fully recognize and I try to use in my own investment strategy. And then I've got a guy today uh, only came out overnight, Michael Girdley of Dura Software. He's got the same yeah. idea, trying to buy software as a service type businesses. But he's he's doing it in this way that they're not going to be the very sexy ones. He's trying to buy these things that are, you know, in, in distinction from something like Constellation Software, which buys vertical market software. So they, they buy one thing that does everything for travel agents or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Michael's just looking for the horizontal um, where, where accounting software or something like that, yeah. where it's less sexy. I had I had Michael on the show actually a few, I think it was a few episodes ago, and he's just he's just a really really cool dude, really really sharp guy, and it's just it's just fun talking to venture venture like investors coming from a value perspective because it just gives you a curriculum on things that you would have never thought about. Yeah, I I, I, th I think he's he's an acquirer, right? So he he comes from a venture background, but in the in the way that I was. Dura software itself is a software acquisition yep. type business. So I, I'm sort of that's where I'm interested. I, I, I like to talk to people who are uh, uh, special situations guys as well, doing little ARBs because that's that's where I sort of learned to invest in a, in a special situation ARB type uh, firm. And and so I, I I'm always on the lookout for those kind of investors too because I think that there are people who are investing. You know, it's it's not stock market investing so much as it is just investing that happens to be on the stock market, but they're not necessarily looking at. They're sort of ignoring the price action for the most part and trying yeah. to do things with the companies that they acquire. So that's that's those are the investors that I'm most interested in talking to and understanding their process and seeing what am I missing from my process that I could take from them and put into mine. And I hope that that comes across in the podcast. Yeah. What What do you think you're missing the most when you talk to these guys? Is it is it is it some? Uh, is it almost like a like a theme with you? Like you talk to four different people, and you come across after those four conversations, like, oh, it's this one thing. Or do you find yourself with 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 myriad of things that 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 you think that you're missing from your process? So I think the thing that has, I really don't like to pay for growth because I've I've if I look back over the testing that I've done, growth is the thing that is the most misleading aspect of that of. If you're if you're trying to pay up for growth, you're often overpaying, yeah. Because everybody else sees the growth, and and that filters down into metrics like return on invested capital, which is highly mean reverting for the most part. But if you're paying up for that, you tend to overpay. 
but I think that this last period of time, that uh, mean reversion, that really hasn't shown up. And I don't know if it's if it's ever going to show up again, or if it's this is sort of what happens at the through a business cycle when we're much closer to the peak of the business cycle than the bottom of the business cycle. So that's something I'm grappling with at the moment. To the to what extent do I start trying to include growth in the portfolio? At the moment, I'm still kind of leaning on not paying a lot for it. But I think that as time goes on, you know, you've got to be a Bayesian updater. You've got to take the new data and feed that back into the model and see if that impacts what the model wants to do. I kind of think that rather than paying for growth itself, I like to pay for the, uh, the, the conditions that give rise to growth. And I think the conditions that give rise to growth are things like just having the cash there to pay for it, being able to reinvest uh, at reasonably high rates, but not at super high rates of return. You just need a reasonable reinvestment rate. And then it's sort of not on the radar of other, it's not an expensive company, but it is growing quite quickly. And when I look at the portfolio, across the portfolio, the top line of the companies that I hold grows at about 5% a year, which is a little bit more than inflation. But the bottom line of the companies is growing sort of more between 15 and 20%, and that's because they're buying back stock. And so that the, the, and that's the growth that you want. That's the real growth that you yep. get as an investor because that's the, it, as the intrinsic value is concentrated further into the shares that you own, they become increasingly valuable, and that should show up in the share price eventually. And I contrast that with the short book where it's reversed. The top right. line growth is very, very high, but the bottom line growth is low or negative because they issue so much stock. There's so much share-based compensation and negative free cash flow. It's just that for this period of time in the market, it hasn't really been fully recognized yet, but I, I think that it it will eventually get recognized. Yeah, and I, I had a conversation with Alex, um, who goes by the science of hitting over on right. Twitter and Guru Focus and you know, he was he was basically giving me um, an education on, you know, how I think about paying for growth. And I should actually, like you said, the Bayesian process is to add this layer because I would pass on ideas where my DCF and my you know five-year valuation, I would assume no growth. And I would think, okay, the stock has to be cheap, assuming no growth for me to pay it. And basically what Alex was saying is like, look, you know, you don't know how many opportunities you're passing on because you're your standard, the minimum you set for yourself is such this no growth mindset where you could miss out on this great idea. And so I, I just, I just completely agree with that. Um, I'm going to get in one more question before we go to the closing questions. And again, this one's going to be a little bit fun, maybe a little bit difficult, but if you could combine the talents of two of your guests to create one super investor, uh, whose talents would it be? And, uh, and, and kind of what would this super investor, uh, be called? in a sense. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I like, uh, I, I, I enjoyed chatting to Bluegrass Capital, um, yeah. a great Twitter account. He does some very deep dives thinking about uh, business strategy, business models, looking at a very growthy end of the market. But he's not uh, exclusively high growth stuff. He's looking for moats and protected returns. So I think that that's a good way of investing. I sort of think that Andrew Wilkinson already does this but I think if those two guys combine, that that's that's a kind of uh, that's a really impressive investor. I think Andrew's um, kind of getting there already because he's a really intuitive, uh, super smart guy, running a Buffett-style method. But then he's already a sort of web design tech guy, so he can he's I think he already understands like 
why is a why is a network website like Dribble so valuable? Because there's there, it, it is more than the sum of its parts because people, many people are going to use it. Many people go there all the time. It's, that's a great business that is likely going to remain for a long time that will grow incrementally and, and at virtually no cost to him. So I think probably those two guys, uh, and possibly because they're the most foreign to what I do, so they're, mm. they're, they're the ones that I find the most intriguing. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So last, last couple questions for, you. I mean, you know, this isn't your podcast now, so feel free to promote as heavy as you want all of, all of your stuff, um, both your podcast, your ETF, your website, your Twitter, where can people go to find out more about you? I have a website, acquiresmultiple.com and that has links to the podcast and all of the books. And you can see the screen, there's a free screener on that site that shows you the kind of names that we would buy. And then there's a paid version if you want to get into – that's only in the top 1,000 companies. If you want the entire market, then you can pay to get access to that. The two uh, ETFs now, there's ZIG, the Acquirers Fund, which is long, short U.S. equities. And then there's another called DEEP, which is only – we've only just taken over in the last day. Uh, DEEP is um, – at the moment, it's large cap because that's the strategy from the preceding um, manager. But in in – Q3 or Q4, it will become a small and micro cap ETF. Um, so that will be a sort of more of a complement to, to Zig in the sense that they won't be overlapping. They'll be two distinct universes. And I, I think that it's just such a great time for deep value in particular, but also for small, um, small cap because small cap's been so beaten up, value's been beaten up. At some stage, they will bottom and they will rocket from the bottom. No idea when that's going to happen. But I think if you, want to, if you want to kind of learn a little bit more about the philosophy, I've written four books, Quantitative Value, which came out in 2012, Deep Value in 2014, Concentrated Investing in 2016, and The Acquirer's Multiple, which came out in 2017. Uh, you can read it in two hours. It's written to a fifth grade reading level, and I think it costs 10 bucks on Kindle, something like that. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you find time to sleep, honestly, between, between starting two ETFs, raising kids, having two podcasts. Well, I love writing, it. It's, like, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. I love thinking about it all the time. I'm thinking about it all the time, like from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. So yep. I, I kind of – I do think that – I don't think that it sort of shows in the returns so far, which has been a little bit disappointing. But I do think that uh, given a different market and given enough time, uh, that the strategies will show why they're uh, why they're why they're good strategies. Yeah, I mean, in the end, we will all end up crying. <laughs> it's all, <laughs> all going to end up. All right, last last question for you: um, If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Yeah, uh, that's a that's a really good question. Look, I I would love to have dinner with Warren Buffett. Like, honestly, that's the probably the top of my list of you folks. Can pay for that, chat to. Yeah, that's a little <laughs> out of my reach. But I, I sort of feel, I feel like it's, you know, they say you should never meet your heroes. And I, I, I'm kind of, I do think that that's right. Because I think that, you know, I've read, I've read The Snowball and I've read other uh, books about Buffett. And I think that, you know, he's clearly, he's a man, he's a flawed man. Yeah. But I, I, I think that he has done something good uh, by promoting value investing the way he has. And I also do think that he conducts himself as a businessman in this particularly uh, good way that, you know, there are a lot of guys out there who are known for being very aggressive. Like I can't very aggressive 
and you, you probably you're going to lose if you tangle with Icon. But I think Buffett is very shrewd, but I, I think he's quite fair too, and I think that that's been an overall benefit for American business humanity that he sort of behaves that way. So I think Buffett's on top of my list. Yep. I, if I was a betting man, which sometimes I am, I would have picked Buffett free. <laughs> I would have picked up a deep value guy choosing Buffett. That is just unheard of. Well, Toby, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I know, you know, we're trying to work in the time constraints here, so we got it in, in you know, within the hour. And uh, I want to I want to have you on again just to really dive into that second ETF deep. Once we get some quarters underneath our belts, we can kind of see what the portfolio looks like. I'd love to have you back on and just you know, talk to us about that whole process and, and the ins and outs of starting that ETF. Uh, but thanks again for your time and, uh, you know, stay safe and stay healthy out there. Thanks so much, Brandon. I really enjoyed chatting to you. Great questions. Really love the Twitter account too. Uh, happy to come back anytime.